Our Father, we're thankful that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And we thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit who authored this text down through the centuries of history, has preserved that text through many, many different persecutions and satanic attacks, and has, has given us the spirit of illumination that we can understand it through the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. Amen. I don't know whether you a little excerpt from a newspaper. Um, I was curious, uh, last week... Um, the Russians had some comment about what's been going on in, in uh, Washington. And it's interesting, there's a lawyer in Moscow who's trying to impeach Yeltsin. And they were, this, this article was going on about it and how it, in Russia uh, is just a question of um, power politics, pure and simple, without any pretense of following law. And the Russians public doesn't really understand what is the big thing in America going on here. What, you know, what's the big deal? And I thought this was a very interesting comment. The former mayor of Moscow had uh, come to here, come to the country, I guess, to, to do reporting, and he came back and wrote an interesting article in the Russian Obskaya uh, Gazeta, or the uh, Observing Gazette, why Americans take perjury so seriously. And I, you know, this is one of the most insightful remarks, and it comes from the mayor of Moscow. I mean, listen to this remark now. This is, this is really insightful. And, and I, I'm not commenting on what's going on in Washington per se. I mean, that's, I stay out of that. Um, but this is a comment by a Russian, externally, culturally external to us, who looks from the outside at our culture and is addressing this, this issue. Now listen to what he says. For an American, abiding by the law is something basic. There was, and, and this is a comment on why that's so in our culture. He says, in America, there was no state that ensured its power with fear and force. In America, there was respect for law instead. If this should disappear from the American way of life, then the whole edifice of American democracy will be undermined. Now, isn't that an astute observation by someone outside of our family can look inside and see what a difference? Uh, this is tremendous. In America, there was no state that ensured its power with fear and force that ensured its power with fear and force. You see the difference? And one is, as I've said before, one of the um, differences historically why America has that view and, and the Russian culture doesn't is actually because of Christology, the very subject we're studying tonight. The eastern wing of the Christian church, the Greek Orthodox, and then on through that, the Russian Orthodox, um, historically had a very weak view of Jesus Christ. And because they did, when they tried to say Jesus Christ is Lord, because they had a weak view of Christ, they had a weak view of what law, Lord meant. And whenever you have a weak view 
of Jesus Christ as Lord, you create a vacuum into which oozes all kinds of substitutes and surrogates. And what in the Eastern Europe theater, that whole Eastern culture, what oozed into the vacuum was the power of the secular state so that the state became curios. And this is why, for example, the word czar comes from Kaiser. They, it's, a, it's a, up until the 1917, and then basically communism just perpetuated under a new label, um, you still had kingdom politics and power politics, and it was the ruler who decreed right and wrong. So anyway, interesting observation, and it shows really good insight, and insight which we as Christians, um, we should be conscious of this. Um, there's an attempt by the intelligentsia today to uh, dismiss the Christian position as something that's right-wing, extremist, odd, never was really part of American culture, you know, maybe in Salem or something in Massachusetts, but basically nowhere else. And it's an utterly false view of our culture. And when it comes to that, it's just frankly a lie. And uh, the people that promote this are either historically ignorant and haven't done their homework, or actually they have done their homework and they're outright deceptive de deceivers. So what we want to do tonight is we want to continue the building the foundation under the, the biblical doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and if you follow in the notes, um, we have made a case for the past two or three Thursdays of the virgin birth. And keep in mind the method that we're using. We always associate a doctrine or truth with an event. So you always have an event of history and then you have a truth that God reveals through that event. That's the way you want to learn Scripture. Because if you don't learn it this way, what happens is that you can get to the point where you can start dismissing the historicity of Scripture thinking all the time you're going to hold on to the truth. But if you learn from the get-go that you cannot accept truths unless the reality behind those truths is valid, then that insulates you. Uh, it, it sets up litmus tests in your brain. So when these events are endangered, warning bells go off and you realize, wait a minute, if we compromise this event, then we all dismiss this doctrine that goes with the event. So it's important that we understand, plus the fact um, it's easier to believe the truth when you know that that truth actually occurred in history. Well, you're not the first person to walk, breathe, that thought about this, has struggled with this, and had to deal with it before the Lord. And lots of other people did in other centuries. So, misery loves company, so we might as well enjoy the uh, struggles of the saints of the past. So, what we are doing now in the New Testament, we're taking the same methodology, and we're looking at the event of the virgin birth, and we're going to associate that event with what is called the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll explain that term as we get into that doctrine. But right now we're looking at the virgin birth, the event of the virgin birth. We've said three reasons why it is historically necessary. In pages 20 and to 24 of the notes. We said three things 
from the scriptures why the virgin birth is necessary. It's prophetically necessary because of Jeremiah 22 and Matthew and Matthew, uh, Isaiah 7. It is uh, necessary because of the legal unity that we all have in Adam. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ had not, could not be a descendant of Adam in the same sense we are. Because if he was, then he inherits, impute, he inherits imputed sin. So, if we, if we also said it's a spiritual necessity because he couldn't continue in the fallen lineage of Adam or he wouldn't have inherent sin. Since Jesus Christ is a lamb without spot or blemish, he must go to the cross sinless. He can't go to the cross sinless if he has the flesh, the fallen flesh. He can't have the fallen flesh only except by the virgin birth, which interrupts the transmission of the sin nature. So, that's why the virgin birth is a sine qua non. You cannot avoid it. And I want to show you, you wonder, some of you maybe, why I'm making such a big deal out of the virgin birth. We're going to see tonight uh, why, um, historically why. But the virgin birth is necessary to cut off inherent sin transmission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's necessary to absolve him from the imputed sin of Adam. And yet he must be true humanity. He must be of the seed of the woman. So the only way he can do that is through a virgin birth where he inherits his humanity through the female and he does not get it through the male. Well, we covered that as a background necessity. Then, last time, we started going into the responses. Because this year, as we go through the life of Christ, we're going to do something new that we didn't do in all the other events and all the other doctrines that we learned. What we're trying to do is a theme for this year and probably next year now because we're so late. Um, we're not going to finish this, this spring, I can tell you right now. Um, what we're going to do is, if, is, is reason this way. If Jesus is the light of the world, why doesn't everyone recognize that? I mean, after all, you turn the lights on, you'd think people would recognize that. So the question now becomes, instead of us, unbelief, judging Jesus and calling him a carpenter or something else, and, you know, and there's not enough evidence that he's the Son of God, and Time Magazine and Newsweek and U.S. News Report, every Christmas they always commission a few people to write articles on what was the real Jesus and so forth. Um, the point we want to make is what John said in John 3. The reason is because men love darkness. Neither come to the light, lest their deeds be reproved. So, men's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a reflection on God or his revelation. It's clarity, it's logic, any characteristics of it. Rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a condemnation of the rejector, not the object of the rejection. So, the issue doesn't come back to Jesus. It comes back to the person who disbelieves in Jesus. Because if you walk into a group of people and it's a dark room and you turn on the lights and somebody says they can't see the light, what do you say? They must be blind. So, ironically, the person who objects that I don't believe in Jesus, after being exposed to that, simply does nothing except reveal their own blindness. 
So what we want to do then is study the blindness because in each one of the phases of the life of Christ, we're going to learn something about the uh, pathological nature of unbelief. And we started last week um, on page 25 where we dealt with the ancient and modern versions of the rejection of the virgin birth. <clears throat> we're going to take every aspect of Christ's life and show you how unbelief opposes it suppresses it, reinterprets it, and rejects it. And we want to watch what happens. So, last time, we dealt with the ancient Jewish rejection of the virgin birth claim. And the Jews are very frank. The quotes I gave you on page 25, all through the Mishnaic writings, the Jews simply say that Jesus was a bastard and Mary fornicated. That is the Jewish answer to the virgin birth. Very clear. Very unambiguous, you know, hey, that's the way we believe, fine. You know, let's be honest in our communication. But the point is that there's a good thing in all that rejection. Because what does that rejection tell you about the virgin birth claim? If you've got Mishnaic writings and evidences that the Jews in the first century were saying that of Jesus and Mary, what does that do when you have to deal with a Gentile's modern Gentile critics, who say that the virgin birth claim was just an add-on that the church later on put in the Gospels. You see, one criticism negates the other one. You see, if the Jews were already calling Mary a fornicator and Jesus a legitimate son in the first century, that tells you they were reacting to something. What was it they were reacting to? The virgin birth claim. And what does that prove? The virgin birth claim was early. It's not a late add-on by the church. It came very, very early, and if it didn't, then why did the Jews object to it? Simple. The enemies of the gospel knew very well what one of the essential claims was, and they were bound and determined to refute it. Now today, we're going to deal with modern Gentile rejection. So we go from the ancient Jewish rejection to the modern Gentile rejection. And again, if you'll turn in the Bible to John chapter 3, because this is the structure of the unbelief, whether we're going to deal with this detail this week, another detail next week, what we want to see is a spiritual principle that's operating here because it operates in us. Every time we disbelieve, we share this kind of mentality. You pick it up like you do the virus because it's all around us. Frankly, none of us are immune from this either, by the way. John chapter 3. Right after 16, the verse everybody knows, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him should be saved. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why is that? Second heaven hasn't happened. How can He be judged already? Well, that's because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. So, verse 19 expounds why unbelievers are already considered theologically and spiritually to be judged. The judgment is this, that light has come into the world, men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there's the explanation, biblically, of unbelief. It is not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. I don't want to get too close to this gospel thing because I know very well 
that that brings my memory and my mind and all my consciousness to heightened awareness that I am responsible for my life before the God who created me and the rest of the universe. And that is an awesome responsibility. And we don't like to be reminded of that kind of responsibility. So we flee. It's part of the fallen, sinful nature to flee that thing. And were it not for the grace of God, we'd all be fleeing it. It's because he has personally intervened in our lives graciously to call us to himself. Well, let's look now. We've seen then that men love darkness, so they invent a cover, a cover story. Now, the mechanism for the cover story, if you'll, there's another passage in the New Testament parallel to John 3 in, in mechanism. If you'll turn to Romans 1, there's a few vocabulary words that we want to look at there <coughs> because the rest of tonight, we're going to develop those words. The picture we get in the Scriptures is when man rejects God's revelation. There are certain things that begin to happen inside the person. Certain things that happen in the brain, certain things that happen in the soul. This is a self-destructive response to revelation. That's why it's so serious. It's a self-destructive. It starts a self-destructive process. And in in Romans chapter 1... Paul says, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? This He's talking here about all kinds of men, whether they've heard the gospel or they haven't heard the gospel, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what is the truth that all men suppress? All men suppress this truth that he goes on to explain. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident. Or in the King James, God has showed it unto them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The word excuse is without a defense in a trial. It's a technical term there. It's not just an excuse. Without excuse means analogia. Apologia is our word from which we get an apology or the apologetic. An is the Greek negative of that. So it's an apologitas. The people are without a defense. Now what that means is that technical word without excuse means that at the final judgment of history for the unbeliever, uh, that at that point, if he had... Um, whatever the defense attorney is, what's Bailey or whatever the guy, the famous, can't even think of him, um, hmm? F. Lee Bailey or Johnny Cochran or whoever, uh, you can have all the lawyers you want, Paul says, but you can't make your case. Now, what would the case be, what would an unbeliever want to make a case for at the final judgment? To, to gain uh, a, a forgiveness, to gain uh, an excuse why he didn't believe the gospel? Well, the unbeliever would have to come up with something. What would you come up with? I mean, let's think imaginatively here. You're facing God in the final time. You, you have not believed in the gospel, so you've got to come up with something. And basically, you're, you have to answer for your life. 
Now, what are you going to make your case on? Well, I think I would try to make the case on the fact that I don't think the gospel is clear. You know, say something like that. Or, it's, the Bible's got errors in it, and I couldn't believe that. And, and you can name 115 different things that you can come up with. But you see, what Paul says here is that they are without excuse. Verse 20 says that regardless of what the excuse is in the protracted defense against the judgment of God, we are held accountable for the knowledge of God known through the creation. So therefore, it's neutral whether you, ha you ever ran across a New Testament in your life. That's not the basis of the condemnation. The basis of the condemnation is because you lived, slept, breathed, and ate in God's creation. And all the while you knew that. Because the verbs in verse 20, look at the verbs. What's one of the heavy main verbs in that text? It says, clearly seen. And you see its emphasis, not just seen, but in the Greek it's kata orao. The Greek word from which we get um, oracle and so on, to see. But the kata prefix intensifies the meaning of the main verb. So this is they clearly see. And not only is the verb intensive in its stem, but it's in the present tense. Now isn't that interesting? It doesn't say they clearly saw. It says they are clearly, it's clearly being seen. How is it clearly being seen? It's clearly being seen since when? Since the creation of the world. Does that include all people? Everybody created? Okay. So that means everybody who's been created is responsible. And, all, and the basis of our accountability is not whether we heard the gospel or not. It's whether we were a creature or not. You see how basic and fundamental that is? Now, what Paul says goes on, and here's the ominous mechanism of rejection. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him <coughs> as God or give thanks. Now, there's the response of the creature to the Creator. It's personal. It's not just intellectual. It's a personal response. Being thankful. Isn't that interesting? Of all the different ways we could respond, it doesn't even say obey Him. Notice that? Just... Honor him and give thanks. Just be thankful. Because wrapped up in the course, we can't give thanks unless we believe all of this. See? But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, that list of actions in verses 21 and 22 show you the self-destructive mechanism that sets in whether a person has an IQ of 140 or an IQ of 40 doesn't make any difference what the IQ is. The self-destructive effects of rejection set in. Now, let's spell out what those things are. They became mataiotes, futile. That's the New Testament Greek word that's translated, uh, that translates the Hebrew word vanity in Ecclesiastes with the Song of Songs. Remember um, the theme there? All is vanity, vanity of vanities. Well, this is that same word. It occurs in Ephesians 4. It occurs in Colossians. Anywhere the mind of unbelief is discussed in the New Testament, you will see this Greek word, mataiotes. It means emptiness. It means vanity. It's very interesting. It means that once unbelief begins, 
it begins to affect our thinking. Because that's what speculations are, are thinking. And it's, it's basic thing. It's dialogue. It's basic gut level, the things that you believe most ardently. The presuppositions of your whole life. It gets screwed up. Thinking at the most basic level gets ruined by unbelief. So it's not true that a person can remain unaffected by rebellion against God. That negative rejection always produces damage. And the damage is matayotes in their thinking. Their thinking looks like it has substance, but underneath it all, it's vanity. And we've studied some of that and we're going to get into some of the specifics tonight. But right now, I just want to see the general principle from the text. Then it says, their hearts were darkened. And the same kind of idea. They're wandering around without light. Their hearts are darkened, meaning that now they're basically self-blinded. What the New Testament is saying here is it's amazing. It's saying that in our unbelief, if we rebel against God's Word, if we turn off Him, we wind up punching out our own eyes. What else can it mean? When their hearts became dark. It means that their ability to see reality is gone. And so, Mateotes and their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. And then, verse 22 tells you what they're saying with their lips while inside the self-destructive mechanism is taking over. They're saying with their lips, professing, means publicly speaking, claiming to be wise. And yet, while they are claiming to be wise, that is, this is a heightened form of wisdom to be able to say no to Jesus, and that shows how intelligent I am. It intel- takes a, you know, extra thinking to deny creation and substitute evolution. This takes an act of wisdom. It's a higher order intelligence. You low-class people still believe in creation, see? And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's what actually happened. And the Greek word isn't very flattering here. It means morons. That's the word. They moronized themselves. Became idiots. This is the result. All the while, they're professing to be wise. And I would venture to say there are probably more, more morons with PhDs after their name than probably in any other strata of society. Because that's where your rejection is the strongest. Think about it. So Paul teaches us to evaluate this, this whole problem. Then he goes on to all the other aberrant things that happen. But all we have time to, to tonight from John 3 and Romans 1. Just look at the mechanism. Unbelief blinds. Now we come to page 26 of the notes. Now we're going to trace a bit of history. And it's one of these areas where I wish sometimes somebody would create a short church history for us fundamentalists of what happened in this century. All of you probably have access to books and pamphlets and stuff your parents read or your your grandparents read. And if you could go back and look at some of that stuff, that reading material at your 
ancestors in, the, in this century, say from 1910 to 1930, somewhere in that period of time, if you could find out what they were reading, it would give you some insights into your own family and some of the ideas that have crept onto your family tree. And we're going to look now at where some of this weird stuff came from. Because I came out of a family where the, my father and my mother came out of this generation that I'm going to talk about. My grandparents came out of the previous generation before this assault on the Christian faith. And it was just as clear to me growing up as a young, man, a young boy that I could see the difference between the way my grandparents believed and the way my parents believed. Totally different. Two different worlds. And I never really understood it until later in life I began to study American church history and then the pieces began to fall together. So we're going to go through these pieces here tonight. On page 26, just some quick background. God can never move without Satan making a counter move. And there are two words. The Reformation and the Renaissance. The Reformation was the Holy Spirit moving in Europe to get people into the Word of God. The Reformation started centuries before Luther. Actually, it started during the time of the, of the awful plagues. People don't realize this, but Wycliffe, Huss, and those men who were the great heroes of translating the Bible, you know how they got to do that and why they were doing it? Ever, you know, you ever ask, well, why did they suddenly decide to translate the Bible? Were they the first people to think about that? No. Here's what happened. Amazing work of God in Providence. The Black Death went across Europe and killed people by the thousands, the tens of thousands. It would go from one village to the next. People would be dying by the hundreds in every village. And as the plague spread, the Roman Catholic priests fled the villages. That left the deacons of the church. Well, what were they going to do without a priest to recite the Mass? They had to have something. And it was out of that social turmoil that they began to say, well, we need the Scripture. And a couple of guys here, there, and so on began to translate the Word of God. It came in response to this awful social upheaval. And the priest took off, so nobody around to be spiritual fathers, so they began to dig into the Scriptures. And one thing led to another, and finally the whole Reformation ignited. So it was a return to truth, the Reformation. But simultaneously with that was this Renaissance thing. The Renaissance is going back to the classics. And it's always looked upon as the new birth. Now I want you to look at the vocabulary. Because we've all learned this in our history courses. And we've all to that degree sucked this up without thinking carefully. Think about this vocabulary. We've all heard Renaissance, the New Birth, the Dark Ages, the Age of Enlightenment. Now, what is that vocabulary? What kind of picture in your mind does that vocabulary denote? Dark Ages. One of the Dark Ages. During the time when Christianity alone held society together in Europe. Dark Ages. And then after the Dark Ages, we have the Enlightenment, when philosophy and science begin, the new birth. 
What was that? That was unbelief. Men call light darkness, and darkness they call light. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And we all buy it in our history courses. It is exactly the opposite. We're not saying everything was great in the Middle Ages. But babes, the Middle Ages was not dark. There was a long line of Christians, largely emanating through Switzerland, who kept the light of the gospel at the price of their own blood, kept the light of the gospel throughout Europe. So, a lot of Christians were available. Hospitals, medical hospices, care for the orphans, care for the widows. Books and libraries and valuable source materials were kept. You know who kept them all? It wasn't the vandals. Our ancestors with their loincloths spearing everybody all over Europe. Those weren't the clowns that kept Europe together. It was the Christians. And all this is just swept aside dark ages. Dark ages. And that's the way we've all learned history, isn't it? All learned the same vocabulary. And it was all the agenda of the humanists to get us to demean the effect and the role of Christians down through history. See? See, we've got to watch these agenda that function here. So we have these two words. Now, in the notes, what I do is, out of the Renaissance, unbelief came, became more uh, widespread and more widely expounded. In other words, what happened in the age of the Enlightenment, actually, it's good in one sense. Because what happened is that unbelief became more out in the open. And you can study these thinkers and realize, follow them. I mean, they're brilliant guys. I really think that you know, if, you, if you are involved in the education pipe and you're going to get uh, your bachelor's degree and you're thinking about taking graduate courses or you're interested in that kind of thing, if you don't prepare yourself by reading Calvin on one side and on the other side, go to Immanuel Kant and at least read this guy. Read Aristotle, Plato. Read some of these guys and see the contrast. Put them side by side. Always read side by side. Always read with the Scripture or the men who defend the Scripture over against the men who attack the Scripture. Don't just read the Scripture. Read some of the attacks. It trains you to see where the attacks are coming from. So, here are the men, Kant and Hegel. They are the two biggies at this period of time, just to right around the birth of our country. And these guys expounded unbelief in such a way that they wanted to reinterpret Christianity in terms of unbelief. Remember, I've drawn this thing up here a dozen times, the amoeba idea, that here you are, and this big slurpy amoeba comes and wants to slurp you up into itself. And that's why you have these things that occur in family gatherings. Oh, Mary, she became a Christian, but you know, she's such a weak person. She needs God as a prop. God as a crutch. And see, that's the Operation Amoeba. We're going to psychologically explain why Mary believed the Gospel. And then we can always, as Christians, turn it around. We can run an Operation Amoeba too. We just run it the other way around. Oh, well, I understand why John rejects the Gospel. I mean, so would I. If I knew I had to face a God without any atonement, without any grace, I'd think of every excuse I could why the Bible was wrong. Now what are we doing? We're taking unbelief and we're absorbing it into our framework. So two can play that little game. 
But what happened with Kahn and Hegel was that they tried to take Christianity and suck it up into their amoeba of unbelief and reinterpret it. And out of that, they began to affect they taught men who taught men who taught men who finally taught gospel ministers. And this crept into the seminaries. It crept into the mainline denominations. So that, and this quote in the middle of page 26, here's an example. Faculty member of Presbyterian Western Seminary in Pittsburgh. I mean, Western Seminary has promulgated tremendous preachers of the gospel. And here's this guy on the faculty at a Christian seminary, paid for, by the way, with donated money. Of course, these guys guys never earn their own money, by the way. They always mooch off of Christian contributors. It burns me up. If you want to say what you want, hey, freedom of speech, fine. Go out and earn your own way. But don't parasite off of contributions by God-fearing people who have tithed, who have made uh, sacrifices in their family budgets to pay, and these clowns have the gall to live off that kind of contributions. And we see it all the time. Well, here's a guy, the faculty member, and where, what better place can Satan have these guys than at seminary? Because that way, see, you can contaminate all the ministers, and then you've already aced out hundreds of pulpits in the next generation. Neat, slick trick. So here's a guy, and this quote shows you how they're responding to the virgin birth claim. This gives you a flavor of how, quote, sophisticated people think about the virgin birth. If you go into the first liberal church someplace and uh, you hear the pastor talking all about Jesus, be careful. He may be talking about a different Jesus than you, you're thinking about. See, there's 110 different Jesuses out there. question is, which is the biblical Jesus? Well, here's his Jesus. If Jesus knew of the tradition of his virgin birth, he never pressed it. After all, who should have decided between him and any number of demigods and heroes for whom such a birth was claimed. It was the church that added these mundane traditions to its Gospels. You see what he's saying? We'll get, we're going to get more of this throughout the year. Because I want you to see what modern unbelief does to the New Testament. So when you hear this, you won't be shocked. The shock has worn off. You've already heard, you've already heard the bullets whistling in. So... So here's, here's where the guns are coming from. This is where the rounds are originating. Their point is that the New Testament is not the truth. The New Testament is a book compiled by the church with all the different ideas of the church in it. But what the real truth was, we really don't know. And, of course, this is a self-contradictory statement because you know what they've basically said? If they say they don't know what the truth is and the Bible is just a compilation, they've already said that they know something. They know, namely, that the Bible's false. Well, if you don't know anything, how do you know that? It always amuses me. You hear the liberals say, John could not have written the Gospel of John. You know, there were a million people living in that time in history and 999,000 of them could have written the gospel except one person. We know that for sure. The, the man that the gospel says wrote it can't write it. That we know. But we don't know anything else. So this is the structure of unbelief. So here's this guy 
who says the church added these traditions. See, he knows so much about all the historical details. He knows so much about the real Jesus that he can distinguish between the historically true Jesus and what the New Testament says. And what the New Testament says is an add-on. The church added that. And his thinking, notice the middle sentence in this quote. Who should have decided between him and any number of demigods and heroes for whom such a birth was claimed? Do you remember me when I started in two, two weeks, three weeks ago? The virgin birth, what did I say? Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, what does Isaiah do with a noun virgin? The virgin. And remember I said, watch the text carefully, because if Isaiah used the article with a noun virgin, the virgin, it must mean that virgin was well known in the ancient world. It was an idea that was circulating all over the place. Yeah, it was. What this guy does, he knows very well it was, because everybody knows that. Look in that second sentence what he's doing with that historical fact. He knows, like we know, that the virgin story was circulating all through the ancient world in distorted form. Mythological versions of it. The constellation Virgo was named back then. Who was that named for? It was named long before Jesus. So, what was going on here? Where did that start? What did we say when we dealt with Isaiah 7? The idea of the virgin came from where? Genesis chapter 3. Eve was going to be the mother of all living and it says, her sperm, her seed, her sperm, shall conquer the sperm of Satan. Well, obviously, something's wrong. So, you know, you don't have to be an expert in the birds and the bees to know there's something strange about that expression. It's nowhere else found. So it's clear that this tradition of a coming virgin was rampant in the ancient world. Now, Satan had twisted it and turned it. So this guy sees all that, but he interprets it as of equal validity. The mythological virgin stories were of equal validity to the New Testament virgin story. He lumps them all together failing to see that the other virgin stories are decrept, corrupt forms of the Noahic tradition passed down through Shem, Ham, and Japheth to all the people groups in the world. So, watch these statements. If you look carefully at them, just like the Jewish statement that Jesus was a bastard and Mary was a fornicator. Look carefully at that statement because that tells you something neat. It tells you the claim was being made. And here... This guy, you know, un, unintentionally, he lets the cat out of the bag. He's saying that he knows very well there was the virgin stories running all over the place, and so this is just another one. He gives a, a wrong spin to it, but behind it he has to testify, yeah, there was all that, the Isaiah 7 story. <coughs> now we come down to our era. <coughs> this happened in every family in America. <coughs> it happened to your family. And if you knew all the facts, you could probably trace it in your own family. So I want you to follow me in the notes because I'm going to quote from a most famous sermon. And it's something that I think um, I would like some time to just go through this sermon with people because it's a great sermon. One of the most famous sermons ever given in the 20th century. Made newspapers from New York to California when it was given. Today you can read a history book and nobody ever knows that the sermon was even given. This revisionist or modernist movement, there's the vocabulary word, modernist, 
What does that word modernist mean? It was a term coined by the Christians the early part of this century to designate this liberalism that was coming into America. The modernist. They were modernizing the New Testament and denying the faith. The opposite word to modernist was fundamentalist. Those two are the big key buzzwords. Okay? There are two different distinct positions held in the early parts of this century. And the fundamentalists, by the way, were men like Robert Dick Wilson at Princeton University, fluent in 26 languages, and other uneducated people. So, don't get into this excuse why fundamentalists are all stupid people. Robert Dick Wilson, J. Gresham Machen, Benjamin Brackenfield Warfield, um, Charles Hodge. Well, no, he was 19th century. But we have all these guys, uh, brilliant men, wonderful Christians, into the Word of God, <clears throat> great scholars. And they insisted that you could not modernize Christianity. Here's where the two words come from. Now, let me give you an explanation for the two vocabulary words. The liberals wanted to modernize Christianity, get rid of the virgin birth, get rid of the blood atonement, get rid of all these primitive features, and modernize it. Make it applicable to modern man. The fundamentalists, however, on the other side said, there are certain fundamentals and you can't give up the fundamentals without destroying the faith. And one of the fundamentalists, fundamentals was the virgin birth. And the modernists became apoplectic about it. They were so angry at these fundamentalists going around the country of America, in California, New York, Chicago, and all these places talk, you have to be, believe in the virgin birth. What kind of primitive kind of stuff is this? Political rhetoric. Think what is at stake. What have we said about the virgin birth? It's the only vehicle to get a sinless Savior into the world. You've got to have a virgin birth. These guys are absolutely right. What the liberals and modernists didn't like was that they got called. They got exposed. Their unbelief got exposed because it was a particular question that Mary Q in the pulpit could come up to the pastor after a Sunday service and say, Reverend so-and-so, do you believe in the virgin birth? And what is the guy going to do? He's going to have to say yes or no, right? It gave a tool to probe, to find out where's the modernism, where's the modernism, where's the unbelief, where's the liberalism. And they hated it. Because every time somebody kept asking that question in Sunday school, on the church boards, uh, in church conferences, they would squirm. Because they t could talk about Jesus from now until hell froze over. But when they started asking questions like, do you believe in the virgin birth, Reverend so-and-so? Now what is he going to do? Well, um, er, uh, and that's all that Mrs. So-and-so needed. She's out of here. Bye. And people started leaving. So that's what was going on here. So in the middle of all this struggle, here's this guy in June 1922. He had it. Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a Baptist clergyman. If you look in the bookshelves of your family, somewhere back in the 20s and 30s, you will find, if they, if they shared in this culture, 
you should find books by Fosdick. He was the Norman Vincent Peale of his time. He was as well known in that generation as Billy Graham is today. That's how powerful this guy was. One of his key books was this one. It was called The Manhood of the Master. You're in a used bookstore sometime, probably worth five cents. You might get it. The Manhood of the Master and read it. Now, you can tell from the title, what has he already done? What has he done to the deity of Christ? See, he can talk about Jesus as a man. But when he gets talking about Jesus, go, ooh, we can't do that. That's primitive. So here he is. He gets up. He was a guest. He was uh, the pastor. I don't know what happened to him that Sunday. First Presbyterian Church in New York City. It was a big pulpit. New York Times and all the big newspapers would cover in those days what these big pulpits said on Sunday. Monday, you could read it in the paper. That's how papers used to follow things. Now we follow whatever happened to the football game. In the pulpit of First Presbyterian Church in New York City, a famous Baptist clergyman and author, Dr. Harry Emerson Fostick, delivered a guest sermon entitled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? A sermon which ignited a full public exposure of the simmering modernist fundamentalist controversy. Fosdick's sermon specifically attacked the fundamentalist defense of the virgin birth. Here's what he said. Now, I'm going to read this to you and imagine this guy with, a, with charisma. I don't have any, but imagine some guy with charisma. That smooth voice, impressive, speaking from one of the largest pulpits in America on the radio. Now, think of how this sounds. You talk about somebody who was slick. Here, for example, is one point of view. That the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the Master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. That is one point of view. And many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. But, side by side with them, in the evangelical churches, notice, please notice, evangelical churches, is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as historical fact. Here in the Christian churches are these two groups. And the question which the fundamentalists raise is, shall one of them throw the other out? Nasty people. Imagine that. Here we have this blessed Christian group and the fundies are saying, we're going to throw you out. What kind of nasty people these fundamentalists? Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ in points like these? The fundamentalists say not. They say the liberals must go. Of course, fundamentalists failed in their attempt. Instead, of they were thrown out. Within years of this, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote the basic Greek Koine textbook used by every first-year student of the New Testament Greek, still to this day, was defrocked. They not only threw him out of the church, they excommunicated the guy. Why? Machen had a war inside the Presbyterian church. It was something that was covered in the newspapers as a result of this. What Machen said was, he said, you know, part of my job as a faculty member here at Princeton is to teach New Testament Greek in, in the seminary. And, uh, and because of my faculty position, I've been appointed to the Presbyterian Board of Missions. 
And I'm on the missions committee. And you know, I've been bothered. We interview these people who want to go out in the mission field and they, they want to help people. They want to go into medical work. They want to do this. They want to do... But you know, they're not theologically prepared. Why? Last week, I interviewed somebody from the missions, from the missions board, the Presbyterian Church, and they didn't believe in the virgin birth. Now, I just don't think as a good Presbyterian, I want to have my money supporting this mission. Ooh, most sensitive portion of the human anatomy. Take a look at that. When this gets involved, all of a sudden things really begin to roll. And Machen decided he was going to cut off the money to anybody that didn't believe the fundamentals. Ooh, thousands of dollars suddenly at stake. Ooh, now these fundies not only are calling us names, they're not only calling us to throw us out of church, they're turning off the money. We can't have that. So they maneuvered. And they kicked Machen out. And he went across from New Jersey over here to Pennsylvania and started Westminster Seminary. So that's the history of our wonderful country in the 1920s. You heard of the Roaring Twenties? Now you know what the Roaring was all about. It wasn't everybody dancing a jig in funny-looking dresses. It was the theology that was in an uproar during this whole period of time. From 1920 to 1930, this entire effect. By 1930, folks, every major denomination had been captured by the modernists. Do you realize what that cost us as a nation? That meant they controlled the libraries. Where does a conservative, godly guy that wants to go study for the ministry go now? No libraries. Didn't have CD-ROMs. Didn't have the Internet. Where do you go get training? Gone. In ten years, every denomination in this country, every major denomination fell. And then the Depression came. And then World War II came. And it was only after World War II that five men, Donald Gray Barnhouse up here in Philadelphia, Billy Graham and three or four other people, Harold Ockengay in Boston, got together and decided, we got a, the, the, the country's in a wreck. This is like we've had a nuclear war. And what we see as Christian work today, including this church, is largely a result of the work that happened after World War II. It's pretty amazing. It's a long, very thin thread in the 20th century. We were a basket case in the 20s and 30s. I mean, we, we think we have a problem today. The apostasy that set in, in the, between World War I and the Depression was one of the worst things that has ever happened to this country. That's where the roots of modernism came. Now, what we want to do is, in concluding, we want to look at this page 27-28. I want to go back to the principles that I showed you earlier, John chapter 3, Romans chapter 1. And as I said, there's an error in the notes that the bold headline should be just caps. My mistake. I have another sermon here. I want you to see this one. Because what I want to show you is that the non-Christian had to deny the virgin birth. Not that he could have denied it. He had to. He couldn't remain consistent with his growing, powerful unbelief and allow the virgin birth and these kind of claims to survive. Now look at this guy, Charles Elliott. You go to Harvard today and... uh, when I was going through at MIT, I remember we Christian guys used to go up to see the Christian buddies up at Harvard, and they used to live in Elliott Hall. It's the name of a dormitory up there now. 
Charles Eliot, the famous Unitarian president of Harvard, presented the following ideas to the Summer School of Theology. Look at the date. 1909. Time of our grandparents. 1909. This was going on. Look where it was going on. The Summer School of Theology, sponsored by Harvard. Now do we wonder why we seem to be obscure, why we're the minority? The new thought of God will be its most cherished element in the religion of the future. This idea will comprehend the Jewish Jehovah, the Christian Universal Father, the modern physicist omnipresent and exhaustless energy, and the biological conception of vital force. And I have an italics there. Do you see the idea there? What is this that I have showed time and time again for the pe- over the last years? What are the two basic ideas? You're going to hold to the creator-creature distinction or you're going to hold to this continuity of being where God, rocks, man, and everything else sort of share in the same goo. That's paganism. Now, what is, it, what is he saying? Look at this. The ideal will comprehend the Jewish Jehovah and the Christian Universal Father. Those are liberal buzzwords for Old and New Testament, while ex- dismissing the obvious discontinuity there. At least those two views hold to the creator-creature distinction. Now look at the next one. The modern physicist, omnipresent and exhaustless energy. The force, anyone? Biological conception of a vital force. The evolutionary upward struggle of life. This mystical thing we call life that's evolving itself into existence. See? It's all here, 1909. The new religion, he continues, rejects absolutely the conception. See? They are dogmatic. They reject absolutely that God is alienated from the world. It rejects also the entire conception of man as a fallen being. Ooh, now we get rid of the fall. Well, let's just keep at it here. See what else we can erode. What do we have here? Evil problem. Only two views. Christian view has a fall. It shows that the universe was one time good and will one day be good again. Or you drop that whole thing out and you've got good and evil forever and ever in both ways. Infinitely backwards, infinitely forward. Wonderful place to live. But he says it rejects the entire conception of man as a fallen being. In all its theory and all its practice, the religion of the future will be completely natural. It will place no reliance on any sort of magic or miracle or other violation of or exception to the laws of nature. And while we're staying Genesis 10, 1 to 10, what were we talking about? Laws of nature, right? And how the uniformitarian principle is just encapsulated. Second Peter 3 exposes it. In the Christian view, there aren't laws of nature. There's only decrees of God. Nature doesn't make laws. God makes the rules. And God rules in heaven. And so when I measure something, and I repeatedly drop something, and I say, ooh, F equals MG, and I say that that's a law. No, it isn't. It's a description of what happens 999,000 times when I drop my pen. Now, I haven't decreed anything. The pen, I don't think it's made a law. Has it made a law? Rug hasn't made a law. Gravity hasn't made a law. Who has? God's ruling. What does Paul say in Romans 1? Remember what every man knows since the creation of the world? His ever-working power. 
So all the laws and all this nature stuff is just a vocabulized form of unbelief that proves that whoever talks about natural law has already touched the regularity of God. And instead of confessing it as the regularity of a decreeing sovereign creator, we've redone the vocabulary. We've put a little spin on it. We call it natural law. <coughs> so it goes on. And we won't, I want to just finish up here by pointing out two more quotes, both by Machen. <coughs> Remember, he was the man who was the fundamentalist who opposed all this. He lived in this time. Now, these men must have been terrible for them because they had grown up at the end of the 19th century when basically you could say that not all was well, but that Christianity still held a dominant role in our culture. By the time these men were 60 years old, 70, they had lived through the collapse of the Christian culture. By the time Machen died, and by the time Warfield died, um, when these men were on their way to their own funerals, they could not look anywhere in America and see anything that remotely corresponded to the way they remember it as children growing up in the late 1800s. That's what these men lived through. And Machen wrote a fantastic book, if you can ever get it, no, it's out of print now. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. It's outdated for modern liberalism, but if you want to gain insight into what these men fought, and had God bless them, because if they hadn't fought, we wouldn't be here probably. Because we've been taught by men who've been taught by men who've been taught out of their resources. But Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It was a classic attack against modernism. And if you read that book, you'll get a flavor of what on earth was going on in America in this period of time. Here's a quote from it. The overwhelming majority of those... This is his answer to Fosdick. The overwhelming majority of those who reject the virgin birth reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. Is he right? What did that Unitarian guy say from Harvard? We not only reject the virgin birth, we reject everything. Why? Because we believe in natural law. Is Machen being an extremist for that statement? Here's this radical right-wing fundy again, always attacking somebody. Always negative. Well, but is it true? The overwhelming majority of those who reject the virgin birth reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. The issue does not concern individual miracles, even so important a miracle as the virgin birth. It really concerns all miracles. And the question concerning all miracles is simply the question of acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. His point there being that the Lord Jesus Christ is presented in a matrix of miracles. You reject the miracles, feeding the 5,000, all the rest of it, you reject Jesus. Very simple. So Machen says, top of page 29, the liberal preacher insists on the possibility of believing in Christ no matter, it's not no matter, no matter which view be adopted as to the manner of his entrance into the world. Is not the person the same no matter how he was born? See, that's what the liberals were saying. The impression is thus produced upon the plain man that the preacher is accepting the main outlines of the New Testament account of Jesus, but merely had difficulties with this particular element in some account. Watch the grease. Machen's cutting through the grease. But such an impression is radically false 
It is true that some men have denied the virgin birth and yet have accepted the New Testament account of Jesus, supernatural person. But such men are exceedingly few and far between. Today, they're basically non-existent. The diagram I've drawn there, if you follow through in the text and read it, all I'm trying to show you is that you can take the virgin birth claim, you come at it with one or the other view, worldview. You come at the New Testament with a worldview that's sympathetic to the revelation that's gone before, all the Old Testament revelation, revelation in the creation all around us, the Noahic gospel, all that. Or you come to the virgin birth with what Romans 1 says is matayotes. It's a self-destruction of the intellect. It is a heart that has darkened. It is a pagan view in the continuity of being and the normalcy of evil. And faced with that position, you come to the claim of the virgin birth and you reject it. Next week, we'll carry on further. And we want to, next week, start to get in to now the formulation of the positive doctrine. Father, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank thee for your grace, that you are not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to faith. And we thank you that you have at least held back your judgment long enough for us to believe. We ask that you would continue to open our hearts and give us wise demeanor, Give us a mouth that can share the gospel with those around us. Give us courage as we live in a darkened world. And give us insight as we deal with the thought forms of our time that are matayotes, that are basically foolishness, but incarnates itself as the wise word. We pray that we would have the insight of these great men like Machen, who fought the battle in their day and kept the torch lit so that it could be passed down to us in our generation. May we be as faithful in our generation to pass the torch to the coming generations, if the Lord tarries. We thank you in his name. Amen. We'll have some Q&A here after a break. Uh, question and answer, that should get us out before nine. Let's try to get everybody out, out of here before nine. Um, The, we're going to start, obviously, next week into getting some of the uh, heavy stuff because we, we've got to deal with the God-man nature of, of Christ, how it's revealed in the New Testament. And, of course, once we do that, then that involves us in the Trinity. So, um, big stuff uh, coming up. So, what I'd like to do is throw it, open for, throw it open to questions that would be prior to that of anything we've covered, maybe Old Testament background to where we're going, or maybe some of the points of church history we, we made tonight. Um, if you haven't, you ought to really think back in your own family line, lineage um, what your parents and grandparents, where they were when all this was going on. Where they were in their thinking, I mean. Because I think it would give you some insight into, uh, into your own spiritual heritage. Um, yes, Debbie. Our first question, the Q&A initiator. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. What, what happened prior to you know, this, um, this, this change in the leadership that allowed these people to get to their position where they had so much influence as far as in the uh, seminaries and whatever? I mean, was there something that happened even prior to that 
Yeah, well, it didn't happen overnight. You're, you're absolutely right. The question is, uh, in order for all this to burst forth on the church in the 20th century, what, for heaven's sakes, went on before that to permit uh, entrenched unbelief in pretty high places? And I think, uh, theologically, it's almost like Israel in the Old Testament. You know, you, you think of Israel now. I mean, they saw miracles. They saw God's Shekinah glory. They had living prophets. And think of the Exodus generation. I mean, man, you, know, you don't even have to go see Prince of Egypt in the cartoon form to realize that that generation saw fantastic stuff, and yet within the same generation, they didn't believe. Started worshiping. Started worshiping, falsifying the theology of the Exodus. And, and it happened to them 30, 40 years ago. So that's how rapidly this stuff can happen. What apparently happened in America was that um, our country's been kind of a funny place uh, for Christianity because it has blossomed and then waned. Um, church historians tell us that, of course, it got a, Christianity was quite vigorous in Virginia, the Virginia colony, basically Episcopalian, um, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, basically Baptist, or not so much Connecticut, but Rhode Island, and Massachusetts and the Bay Area was very strongly congregational. So you had different denominations, but ideologically and theologically, they were what we would call conservative by our standards today. What had happened, though, was that this country at its founding had a large number of people who had already bought into Unitarianism. Um, Unitarianism flourished in Massachusetts and spread from there, uh, fed by rationalism out of Europe. And it infected very early Harvard, Yale. It it affected, and it's just like a toxin. You know, viruses attack your body and they go go for your throat. (laughs) You know? And... The un- unbelief uh, creeps into the most strategically sensitive areas imaginable. And what is the most strategically sensitive area? The training of the next generation. So, wherever you have education, you will usually have the infestation. It always seems to trigger that. So, where do you think that young pastors in America, in order to get their advanced degrees to teach, went? They go to Germany. So, out of continental rationalism, out of the, the Kantian tradition, Hegel, Hegelian tradition, that had already affected European universities. Uh, men were writing critical textbooks on the New Testament that we can't really believe, for example, that Moses wrote all of Exodus and this kind of stuff. So, the textbooks about biblical history were already being infected. These, because there were no other texts, became the teaching tools in these seminaries. Um, we can look back and Monday morning quarterback. You know, we're good at that. I think what happened is that the generation didn't see it coming. I think all during the 19th century, there were other things that preoccupied America. We had the Civil War, we had the slavery issue. Uh, we had the great revival under Jonathan Edwards at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, 
uh, that seemed to be a recovery because if you read biographies, the country went to spiritual rot between the American Revolution and the War of 1812. In fact, some Christians commented the reason why the British invaded Washington, D.C. was because it was God's hand to, to uh, stir up Americans because of their apostasy. Uh, drinking and drugs were very strong in the eight, early 1800s. Um, the East China Tea Company, West Indies Tea Company, was more than tea that they were importing. Um, so you had a lot of that stuff going on. And the, God gave a great revival. And uh, the, the tentacles of that revival spread. You had uh, the Methodists were good at... Um, they went into the Midwest. Methodism had an ability to, to be the circuit riders. They went into uh, new areas, uh, into the Appalachians. Uh, lone riders, just teaching the Word of God, uh, patterned after John Wesley. Um, what I'm trying to say is that each denomination that we can identify, the Baptists, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, uh, were basically majority conservative. But in their schooling, they were all getting the same kind of vibes. Um, by 1840, for example, Unitarian, uh, Uniformitarian geology had already been established. There were already questions in Bibliotheca Sacra in 1844 uh, about the liberalness of the days of Genesis uh, and tolerated by the conservatives. The conservatives in the 19th century basically saw science developing. This was new. They didn't really know how to handle it. And they didn't want to look like fools. So they started doing this. Backing up. Giving it more room. More room. And what unfortunately happened was, this, is why, this explains why today you have Henry Morris and the strict creationists. It's not because guys like Henry Morris are historical illiterates. It's not because we don't think about issues. It's precisely because we know the last 200 years of church history. We recognize that in the 19th century there was a strategic mistake. The Christians backed up and hoped hoped that this would correct itself. It was something that they wouldn't have to bother with. And it just got worse and worse. So I would say, in answer to your question, Debbie, that the seeds had been prepared largely through the uh, intelligentsia, the libraries, the books that were written, and so forth. And the men who held the line, that's why your fundamentalists like Machen and Robert Dick Wilson are such wonderful men to read. Because when you read these guys, I mean, I've got a book home, The Old Testament and Scientific Investigation by Robert Dick Wilson. Here he is, professor of Old Testament at Princeton Seminary. And he's the guy that knows 26 languages. I don't even remember the names of 26 languages, leave alone be able to read them. And this guy was the Old Testament professor. And what is stunning when you read these guys is they were really trying to interact with the Germans overall is rational. They really were. They were studying it. Uh, they were, you see it in their footnotes, in the bibliography. They were interacting with it. But the problem was they were shooting at specific targets like this instead of digging out the foundations. They hadn't yet come to an aware that something was rotten down the foundational level. And they didn't perceive that. Apologetics in the 19th century on into most of the 20th century has always been Christians trying to justify their faith to the canon of reason, 
to show that Christianity is, quote, reasonable, to show that Christianity fits the facts. And what happens is, is that you, you had men like Warfield and Hodge, who, let's just say, this is the criteria of the facts of history. So, Hodge and Warfield would take that as the, as the criteria. Or they would take reason as the criteria. Then they would say, now, we want you to accept Christ. And we're going to show you, in order to accept Christ, that our gospel meets these tests. The problem was that they were naive about how seriously sin had already affected these. That reason itself is contaminated. That you don't have anything as pure fact in history. All facts are observations that in turn have been filtered through an observer. So, it was naivete. And I think in that degree, it's a repeat of what we're going to see in the coming uh, Thursday nights about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty stunning and sobering to realize that the church did not get its act together on defining who Jesus was until close to 500 years after he died. Why did it take the church 450 to 500 years to finally get it together? Well, it was because we are sheep. (laughs) And we kind of wander all over the place and and, and getting, getting ourselves in all kinds of messes. And then when we finally get in a mess, you know, the wolves come and bite us and all kinds of things happen. And then, well, there's the shepherd. And so finally, you know, we, we, the shepherd comes and he gets his crook and boom, gets us out of the ditch and pulls us over here. Okay, stupid, stay here. And, you know, we learn that one. And then we go wandering around something else. Well, what happened in the, in the doctrine we're going to see is the church wandered into Arianism. Arianism is the belief that Jesus was a man on whom came the Spirit of God. And they, and, and they tried to deal with this biblical data. The next lesson, the lesson Carol passed out tonight, has Old Testament streams. Pay attention to the verses that I list. There's a lot of Old Testament texts in there. The reason why I'm giving you all that biblical material is that was what the church was struggling with because they had people inside the church that were denying the deity of Christ. The Arians. And you had the Sabellians, and they were all screwed up on the Trinity. And, and the church fought this. And if you have, you look at the hymn, hymn book. Oh, I mentioned this um, last time, but i, I do it again. Um, or did I do it in church service? Was it the church service or Thursday night class? I forgot when I did this. But if you look at the end of the hymn book, look at the section because this illustrates what I'm talking about. Uh, Look at the section at the end where we have the creeds, if I can find the page. This is a great illustration. Look look at selections 716 and 717. And 718. 716 is the Apostles' Creed. That was done in the first century. Now look at what what the church said. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, so on, suffered in Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits on the right hand of God. So that whole paragraph is devoted to the Lord Jesus. Now, all those are true. The church was right. But what happened was you had weasel words and the greasy people. 
that stayed inside the church, inside the church, not outside the church, and they wanted to make Jesus less than pure whole deity. And they, they were able to survive the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed did not screen out that kind of unbelief. It was a coarse screen. So notice now what happens in Selection 717. Do you see what they've done? They've tightened up the screen a little bit. Now how does the creed read? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Notice what they've added, by the way, to God's creation. Why do you suppose they did that? What's missing in the Apostles' Creed? God created what? Angels. And see, they were trying to make Jesus half God and half angel. And so the Nicene Creed came in and corrected that. They said, no, all things visible and invisible mean all angels are created and therefore Jesus can't be an angel. So that little clause was tacked on there to screen out some more unbelief. Now look what they did when they got to Jesus. Look at what they did the next sentence. And in one Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the commas. Look at the commas. The number of uh, uh, appositional phrases here. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of His Father. Before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Now they go into the history of Jesus. Do you sense what the writers of the Nicene Creed are trying to do here? Why are they putting this fantastic screen up that's just filtering out every single particle that they can get? Because they were fighting to define Jesus Christ on the basis of the scriptures that we're going to study. The scriptures I'm quoting in the notes are all came up historically in these councils for discussion. And you know, we don't have one of the great creeds that followed this, which I will, now that I realize that, I'm going to bring that in. I'll try to get you copies of it in the next handout. The Chalcedon Creed, that was the one, the capstone after all this fighting was going on. And you'll see what they did to improve the Nicene Creed. So they went through all these stages trying to state what the New Testament... And the reason is, is because the guys who wrote the Apostles' Creed thought they had it down. And then what happened? Satan came along. And we have certain unbelief. We have certain heresies, Sabellianism, Arianism, and so on. Then the church says, okay, well, we didn't make it tight enough. So then they go back together and they go into church council and they go into a huddle. Look, guys, what are we going to do? We've got to deal with this thing. We better study these scriptures more carefully because we've got all these heretics in the pulpits. Pulpits, by the way. So, the church got together and formulated the Nicene Creed. Then this wasn't enough because after the Nicene Creed, some more guys came in, started arguing another thing, that Jesus, yeah, he's both God and man, but, he's in, but it's mixed together in one person. Well, that denies the creator-creature distinction. So, they had to invent a, a third creed, the Chalcedon Creed. Now, in conclusion to this, let me warn you about something. <coughs> when you get Jehovah's Witness or somebody at your door, knocking and attacking the, the person of Christ, what they're going to tell you is that these creeds are all made by man. And, and you Christians, that, you know, Jesus isn't fully God. Jesus Michael the Archangel is something. Uh, but he's not God. The Bible says he's not God. Lots of evidence he's not God. And you just can't go by this Trinity stuff and, and this hypostatic union stuff. It's all men's words. Yeah, 
It is man's words. We believe, however, they're spirit-taught words. Um, mature reflection of the scriptures. And if you read church history, these things weren't invented. The guys didn't sit down, you know, this is at the barber shop on Saturday morning, got nothing else to do, no games today, so we're going to talk about theology. And so they all gather around the stove, it's cold day, and they warm themselves in a theological discussion. They say, by golly, we made the Nicene Creed today. What are we going to do next week, guys? That's not how these creeds came about. They came about because there were serious fractions, arguments, excommunications going on throughout the church over these issues. And they had to bring peace to the church. So the creeds were devised to summarize Bible doctrine in such manner that everyone could communicate, here is what we believe. Because remember, they didn't all carry New Testaments around. So these creeds, they memorized them. These were all memorized. So people out there couldn't read. Lots of people were illiterate. They weren't stupid, by the way. They probably could think a lot better than the TV generation. So these people were smart people. It's just that they were illiterate and they didn't have their own copies of the Bible. So here's what they did. They memorized the creeds. And they saved them. That saved generations of Christians from drifting off into apostasy. So that's what happened. And to the final question, we only got one question tonight. Uh, the final que- answer to that is, is that similar things happened in the 19th century and we're still dealing with the after effects of that. That's why presuppositional apologetics, I believe, is God's answer in the 20th century. I think Cornelius Van Til and other men who have honed this tool, uh, it's never been there before. I mean, it's there in the scriptures, but we never really used it. And so we need tools. We need a framework. This is why I'm trying to teach event and doctrine. Because we live in a greasy generation. Everybody yak-yakking about Jesus this and Jesus that. Well, so are the Aryans. The issue is, what is the gospel? How does the guy get saved? What did God do to save us? What is he going to do to judge us? Those are the fundamentals. And that is exactly the opposite to the way the world wants to treat the whole thing today. So, we want to emote, and we want to slide around and see a grease. That's the story today. So, we need to pick up the pieces. We're still in the generation picking up the pieces from what happened in the early 20th century. Um, and then ensuing Thursdays, we'll carry on with this. Okay.